I was at home watching the news when breaking news came out about a rally happening in Charlottesville. It was what I can only explain as like a post-traumatic stress moment. You know, torches being carried, uh, chants of the Jews will not replace us, and ultimately a young woman being run over and killed. Parents saw their children on television at the Charlottesville rally and suddenly were horrified. My email, my phone, text messages, social media messages blew up. People looking for help with people that they loved who suddenly they realized may be part of this white supremacist movement. Why were they calling you? You know, I think that they were calling me because they thought that 30 years ago I would have been at that rally. White supremacy. It's a sinister and sometimes invisible system all around us. The institutions and the laws that have kept white people on top in America since before the country's founding. You don't need a white hood in your closet to be part of it. But extremists in costumes like that have defined the outer limits of our reckoning with race. Members of the organized white supremacy movement shift the goalposts of what society finds acceptable. But there was a time when it seemed the movement was starting to fade. Back in the 1920s, as many as four million Americans were card-carrying members of the Ku Klux Klan. The numbers have been nowhere near that since then, but with the civil rights movement in the 1960s, KKK membership started rising again. Then by the 1980s, it was clear that efforts to legalize segregation were going nowhere and some thought the movement was finally dying. Anyone who might have predicted the demise of the KKK wouldn't have predicted what came next. This time, the message of hate took root among young people in American cities through a new generation of angry kids. With shaved heads, steel-toed boots, and swastika tattoos, neo-Nazi skinheads styled themselves as the frontline soldiers in a coming race war. This podcast will tell the story of how a generation of racist teenagers in the 80s and 90s breathed new life into the American white supremacy movement, and how that planted the seeds for hate among youth today. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Odette Youssef, and this is Motive. What was the belief system that you had when you were really into this stuff? The worldview of a Nazi skinhead at that time in the 80s and 90s was that we were vanguard warriors fighting on the front lines of a very fierce battle over the safety of the white race. There are a lot of flavors to the white supremacy movement in America. Some are tied to political beliefs. Some go under the guise of religion. But regardless of the strain, to enter that world is to enter a world of conspiracy theories. We believed that there was a threat because of immigration, things like multiculturalism, which we said was polluting and destroying the white race. And that programs like welfare were designed to take money from hardworking white people and line the pockets of black and brown people. 
And all of this was the work of elite puppet masters. The governments and the societies that held the power throughout the world were enabling this through a global Jewish conspiracy. What was the name of that Jewish conspiracy? Well, it had a lot of names, but we knew it as Zog. Zog, the Zionist occupation government, a secret cabal of Jews who are plotting to control finance, the media, and politics. This sits at the center of what Nazis believe. And it's an idea that has taken root across other forms of white supremacy as well. That corrupt Jews have subverted democracy to take over. That they hold the power in the purse strings that control Americans' lives. Jews are recognized as smart uh, and elite, while people of color uh, or anybody who's non-white are seen as subhuman, uh, as people who don't deserve to exist in a productive society. When Christian became a neo-Nazi skinhead, he thought he was seeing the truth for the first time. And his job was to prepare for the inevitable and imminent race war. I subscribe to the idea of we need to violently, if necessary, defeat the enemy. Our goal was not to be patriotic. It was not to be pro-democracy. It was to overthrow the government. is a Confederate flag, which, you know, people are still arguing today that this is a symbol of heritage and not hate. I can tell you, I was using it in the 80s. People before me were using it as a symbol of hate. I waved it. I wore patches on my jacket. We used this to try and connect with the average American white racist because we knew that waving a swastika flag turned even the average American you know, white racist off. So what did we switch to? We switched to a symbol that was more recognizable. It's the same shit. It's the same shit. Clark didn't just connect his young group of racist skinheads to older traditions of white supremacy in America. He actually saw them as connected to Nazis like World War II German Nazis. In the Nazi Bible, Mein Kampf, Hitler has nothing but good to say of his friend Rudolf Hess. He even appointed him deputy During World War II, Rudolf Hess was the deputy Führer to Hitler. After his capture, Hess was kept at Spandau Prison in West Berlin with other high-ranking Nazi war criminals. By the mid-80s, he was the only one remaining there. And he had become a sort of martyr figure to neo-Nazis all over the world. Clark was obsessed with him, too, and literally got on the phone and somehow called into Spandau Prison. <laughs> I'll never forget. Wait, what? And, like, tried to talk to Rudolf Hess? Yes, he got all the way into the prison. Like, and we were drinking, and, we, and everyone started laughing like a prank phone call, but it wasn't a prank phone call. It really happened. <laughs> like, can you imagine this man from Nazi Germany that killed Jews and did this? Like, I knew it was wrong. More than one cash member told us about the call to Rudolf Hess. It's become part of their folklore, a story they still tell with a laugh. But I find it strange and disturbing. 
When I spoke to Chrissy, I could never get clarity on what she thought she was really involved in. I mean, she had a swastika tattoo. The movement Clark had brought her into believes in genocide. But to this day, Chrissy calls Cash just a gang. To Clark, Cash was never just a gang. He made the connections to Nazis real. They were the direct forefathers of the wayward, shaved-headed teenagers he was busy gathering in a city thousands of miles away. It's just so weird. I'm so glad I never realized, I never heard anybody. There are disturbing signs that racism is once again taking hold in America, especially among our young people. Disenchanted teenagers from city streets, they call themselves skinheads, are now being recruited by old-line white supremacists. They describe these young racists as fringe degenerates with weird tattoos, shaved heads, and a dangerous new gospel. Skinheads, hardcore young white Americans who preach racial hatred through violence, may be the most frightening phenomenon of all. The news media may not have portrayed neo-Nazi skinheads in a flattering light, but for leaders like Metzger, any coverage was good. He wanted the movement to go national. And the biggest boost he could wish for was when daytime talk shows came knocking. It was a mutually parasitic relationship, a ratings bonanza for the shows, and a platform that neo-Nazi skinheads never could have imagined. That's when people started to pay attention to this thing. It was like real. It was a coming out, so to speak, of that movement. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Odette Youssef, and this is Motive. Boots to Suits. I actually for a long time thought that through the process of conversation, I could break down barriers of, you know, racism or homophobia or ideas that people had that were, you know, discriminatory toward other people. From the very launch of her nationally syndicated show, Oprah Winfrey tackled some of the topics that Americans still struggle to discuss. She spoke with WBEZ for the Making Oprah podcast in 2016. And it was the revelatory moment with the skinheads, actually, on the show that I realized the power of the platform. In February of 1988, Oprah invited racists from California into her Chicago studios. One of them was Tom Metzger. They called me on the phone and set it up. And uh, they fly me out there, pay my way, and put me up in a hotel. Metzger's monthly newspaper chronicled the event with a full-page photo spread. In one picture, Metzger's son and some of his skinhead followers are marching through Chicago's O'Hare Airport, Sieg Heiling. In another, the caption claims to show two of Metzger's associates in a limo, smiling on their way to, quote, an exclusive party of 25 racists in Chicago's best hotel. As the show began, tensions were already high. Hi, everybody. 
My guests today call themselves skinheads. They say their heads are shaved for battle and that they must save the white race from communists, from homosexuals, from capitalists, blacks, and Jews. The tension in the studio really starts building, though, when Oprah turns the microphone to audience members. That's a ceremony. You know what I don't understand? Why do why do you all feel that you're better than us when it's all over? I don't over? care who's better than all, hey, well, That's not an issue here. One, and you, because I'm black, you will not, not have a choice to not to want to sit with me. You're going to have to sit with me. because God's gonna After a black woman in the audience speaks, Oprah turns the mic to a skinhead who is sitting in front of Tom Metzger. You said, let me let, I, I just heard what you said. You just said, I don't sit with monkeys. You think because she's black, because I'm black, we're, we're, we're monkeys? Is that? It's a proven fact. That's a proven fact? <laughs> it's a proven fact that I'm a monkey? Could be. Hello, you know, <laughs> mother. Hello. We're the Cinnamon Toast Crunch Bakers. I know. Of course. During a commercial break, I saw them signaling each other with their hands and making signs and saying, yeah, get her, and that kind of thing. I went, whoa, I think I'm exposing them. I think I'm showing them and their vitriol and their dark side and trying to get them to see a different point of view. And they are using me. Well, I've got the got the word out of what we're talking about and that we weren't embarrassed to talk about it. And it got it out all over the country. So we got a lot of mail. Fourteen-year-old Christian Picciolini had skipped school to watch the episode at home. And to him, the show was not a train wreck. I was struck by it. It was a powerful moment to finally see what I was newly a part of being legitimized. And it made me very proud that that was what I was a part of. Around this time, federal law enforcement was also turning up the heat on racist skinheads. The Department of Justice created a special skinhead task force in 1989. Later that year, it charged five Dallas Hammerskins with attacking Black and Hispanic people and with vandalizing Jewish institutions. The next year, six Tulsa skinheads were charged with various hate crimes, and eight skinheads were indicted in Nashville. By the early 1990s, the high-profile indictments and the downfall of the Metzgers clarified one thing. The brazen violence, the outrageous displays on daytime talk shows, those weren't serving the movement well anymore. I just told them, you're getting your ass kicked by the cops and everybody else, the FBI. So you got to do it a new way. We got to get away from this. Tom Metzger's organization may have been finished, but just as he had always done, he adapted. He started preaching a new message to those who were still listening to him. He told them to trade their boots for suits. Look, grow your hair out, get a briefcase, go to college, Join the police department, get into the government, get into the places where you can do us some good, and forget the skinhead thing. They went to college, got a good job, got a career. They went in the military, they went in the police, they went into other areas of government. 
and they're there right now. I am officially running for President of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. The big thing that got me into this stuff was Trump's campaign. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending them. Like, I remember he had his first speech that was kicking off his campaign. They're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. If you look back to what Trump was saying on the campaign trail, I thought, like, it was explicitly white nationalists. He's calling for a Muslim ban, like, building a wall, like, you know, deporting all these Mexicans and stuff. I mean, am I wrong? This is supposed to be something new that we're not going to have the guys who we called 1.0. 1.0 meaning guys like Christian, guys like Tom Metzger, people who are operating in, like, the 80s or 90s or before. Like, we weren't going to have those types of people be involved in this alt-right Charlottesville thing. But yet I got there, and, and there's David Duke, like, right in front of me. The next day, Brendan was excited to rally again with his fellow racists. He remembers arriving at the site. There was, you know, the protesters. You saw the black and red, this huge black and red Antifa flag. And then there's all these pastors that were chanting and clapping, love has already won, love has, love has, love has already won. And I remember like feeling this weird, weird feeling, like as I was, you know, going through those pastors with that chance, you know, stepping into the rally space. And it was just so, like such a surreal feeling. Brendan said it felt surreal because just a few years earlier, he considered himself a lefty. He even had made a website to troll a notorious homophobic hate group. And just like how he had completely switched just within a matter of a few years. Like I, I was now on the other side of what was called, like, hate or whatever. Because <laughs> um, that would have been me. Like, just, like, when I was, like, 18, 19 years old, like, protesting these, like, hateful people or whatever. And yet I was, you know, crossing through them, you know, into the other side, into that space. De-radicalizing extremists is hard and long work. And like everything else, it's even harder in the age of COVID. How worried are you about Brendan right now? I'm worried about him because I know, you know, it's a perfect storm, right? Like all this is happening and he lost his job. He can't find a job. We've got stay-at-home orders. There's every obstacle possible in the way right now to this guy's recovery. You know, like he needs to, to find an outlet uh, he needs to to interact with people to continue to challenge his narratives to keep that momentum going. But he's stuck in his apartment by himself with only those old connections. I mean, I still do talk with some of them informally. It's not like, especially during this pandemic, like since I have no one else to talk to, frankly, I need to talk to someone. I mean, that's only human. 
Um, you know, sorry if someone has a problem with that, but I need someone to talk to. But no, I'm not, I'm not like joining any like official groups or any official like servers or anything like that, just informal like little texts here and there with individuals. But in another way, the pandemic has made it clearer than ever to Brendan that he's never going back. Our movement doesn't, the movement I was formerly in, does not offer a coherent solution to what we're going through now. But the movement is eager to provide explanations, none of them based in truth. In Austin yesterday, a protester was shot dead by another member of the public. Someone got shot! In Kalamazoo, Michigan, a peaceful counter-protest turning violent as marchers clashed with the alt-right group The Proud Boys, an organization designated as... Pledge allegiance to the flag! Guns at protests are becoming more common. We call ourselves the Boogaloo. We have breaking news now to tell you about. 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse of Illinois is charged with the deadly shooting of two protesters in Kenosha on Tuesday. This is a perfect storm for extremism to thrive. And I say that because uncertainty is the number one driver for extremism. The uncertainty started with the coronavirus pandemic then the wave of unemployment that overtook the nation, and then the racial tensions that erupted in America's streets after George Floyd's killing. This is everything that they've been hoping for. Their whole ideology is based on a race war coming and that they will be the heroes of that race war. So not only have they been preparing for it, when they see the signs of it happening, they're doing everything they possibly can to further along, to amplify it, to pour gasoline on the fire. with the run-up to the election, the aftermath of the election, the sort of longer-term scene after the election, there are a lot of perils and a lot of dangerous scenarios that could come to pass where you see acts of mass violence and you see acts of real political warfare in the streets. And to be clear, like a lot of these people have been girding for a civil war for years. That's why they have guns. We may have to fight the state. In the Trump era, they have been preparing for this civil war the whole time. It seems that every time Black people make gains, America convulses and then retreats. And I think now, in 2020, when we are finally hearing the cries of the oppressed and, and seeing the injustice that has happened, we're seeing you know, an equal, if not greater, backlash from scared whites in response to that. The question is, this time, will we see it through? We just can't give white supremacy a pass anymore. We can't sweep it under the rug anymore. And we can't not call it for what it is anymore. We've reached a point where if we refuse to call it what it is and to be vigilant against it, it will overcome us. 